Exodus chapter 22 is where we left off in our study through the book of Exodus. These few chapters that we're looking at together, beginning back in chapter 21, uh, we were told there in chapter 21, verse 1, that God said, Now these are the judgments uh, which you shall set before my people. So basically what God is doing in these chapters here is giving to us various laws that were then, in a sense, given to those judges, if you remember Moses, uh, delegating some of his responsibility and his authority, raised up around him other judges to be able to handle uh, different matters among the congregation of Israel, just basically the functions of everyday society when problems would arise. God had given them the Ten Commandments, but now we sort of get an expanded uh, view of the Ten Commandments in some ways as God gives a little more specifics as to how they were to uh, legislate different issues and really we get in these few chapters here uh, laws concerning all types of different things Uh, we saw laws regarding uh, slavery laws regarding personal property laws regarding if there was a murder in society uh, laws regarding Uh, how to deal with disputes and rebellious children and so on and so forth. So again, as we go through these things, some of them are a little bit tedious and difficult to work our way through. Of course, we have to remember that, you know, culturally in ancient Israel, some of the things that God had given to them as the congregation of Israel were things that were uh, applicable to what was going on in their society. And and we, of course, today, uh, thankfully, are not under the law. We're under grace. But certainly the principles... And the truths that we find in these laws that were given to regulate the society among the the nation of Israel, uh, the principles still remain with us. And I believe as well in them, you also a lot of times uh, are given revelation regarding some of the nature in the heart of God. As you see things that mattered to God, that he would set them into order as sort of judgments and laws that they were to use to regulate their society as a people, you get sort of insights into the heart and nature of God as you go through some of these things. Well, let's pick back up here in chapter 22, kind of where we left off. Uh, we were talking about, you know, if potentially you, you know, were watching someone's property and things went missing in regards to that time when maybe you were house-sitting someone's property or taking care of their animals and uh, a thief stole those things and then you came back and trying to settle some of those disputes. So with that same kind of vein, we pick up here in verse 14, it says, and if a man, chapter Chapter 22, verse 14, if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make good. And if its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. It was hired uh, for it came out of uh, for its hire. So, again, the idea here, as we've seen this multiple times already, that God expected there to be at times restitution, uh, that when wrongs were done, God required that they would make good, uh, that debts would be settled. We've talked about that already in the previous verses and that they would make good when there were problems or losses or if a thief stole something. 
thing. At times they didn't just get a punishment, but they also were required to make restitution uh, and to give back what they had taken. And a lot of times there was with interest added onto that. If they stole one animal, they would have to restore multiple animals back to those who they stole from. And here God gives reference to if somebody borrows something from their neighbor. So you, you know, go next door to your neighbor and, hey, can I you know, borrow your, uh, your weed trimmer there. And you know what it's like when people borrow stuff, don't you? If you? We've all experienced that one before. When you lend something out to someone, there have been a number of books that I have borrowed that I should have just gift wrapped uh, because once you lend them out, you just you almost know sometimes that thing is never coming back uh, and you almost have to use discretion. But here again, as, as they would borrow things, again, using an animal, and keep in mind it was an agricultural society, an animal was basically like in many ways today, like your John Deere tractor or some type of a you know, threshing sledge and something that was very helpful. So if you needed to borrow somebody's ox or their donkey uh, to be able to work in your fields, it says, if while you're using it, if you had borrowed it, and the idea is that the owner you borrowed it from, your neighbor was not present, and that animal gets injured or dies while they were not present, God says, then you need to make good. You need to make restitution. That belonged to them. They let you use it freely. You borrowed it from them. They graciously lent it out to you. So God says you should make good on that. You should restore it back to them uh, and pay up in a sense. However, in verse 15, he says, if the owner was with it, then it's not required that restitution be made if the animal is injured or died in the midst of the work process that's being used for. He says, for it was hired and it came out of its hire. In other words, there the idea is if the owner is with it and it was a contractual arrangement, he didn't just let you borrow it and say, hey, you can use the mower for free. Just bring it back when you're done. Uh, the idea here is he says, okay, well, I'll let you use my tractor for this set amount of money or I'll let you use my donkey for this amount of money and they hired out. It's a business arrangement. Well, the idea is in the compensation that was received through hiring it out, the risk was factored into that. So if the owner was present, nothing shady happened, and that was part of the personal risk, and his animal was injured or died, then God says uh, in that situation, restitution was not required because the compensation from the price it was hired out for would make due. Uh, and the, the one who hired it knew that there was that risk involved. Verse 16, we now get to some description about, again, something that's very different than today's culture. Uh, dowries and arranged marriages and these kind of things. As a father of three, I, I wouldn't be upset if we kind of leaned back towards this. But uh, lo and behold, that's this not the way it is in our Western culture here. But it was very, very much a part of ancient Israel. It's a part of places to this world uh, to this day still where they pay bride prices and dowries and so forth. Uh, but verse 16 begins to give some instruction about that. It says, if a man entices a virgin, that is a gal who is unmarried, uh, sexually pure, uh, who is not betrothed, and again, the idea of a betrothal was like the engagement period. They would arrange a marriage. You know, two fathers would arrange a contractual agreement uh, for their son and their daughter to be married. And at a certain point then, that contract would sort of be ratified. They would enter into what was called a betrothal period for a set period of time. It was a time for the young man 
to go and prepare a place for the bride and usually he would build an addition onto his family's home and then when it was ready he would go back and pick up his bride and bring her back to his father's house and to their chambers where they would now then dwell connected to that home and it was also a time that betrothal period whereby in a sense the young girl's purity was validated uh, it was time for her to demonstrate her personal purity as she waited patiently for her husband to come and to pick her up and then they would consummate the marriage Just much like our engagement period today is sort of what a betrothal was so here the instruction and Deuteronomy chapter 22 will give more expanded explanation on this in regards to if a situation happens uh, when there's not a betrothal or engagement but the specific instruction here is if a man entices a virgin who's not betrothed, so she's not committed to someone, she hasn't been arranged to marry a man at this point yet, and he lies with her, he has sexual relations with her, it says he shall then, as a result, surely pay the bride price for her to become his wife. But if her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of the virgin so uh, if a, a man in the culture would entice and seduce a young virgin girl who wasn't betrothed or committed to another man yet he was then responsible to pay the dowry or the bride price for her to the father as well as to take her as his wife as the result of that unless it says the father utterly refuses and says you're not getting my daughter you stinking scoundrel you know, pay up and then take a hike you know and the father had the right to do that uh, and in some situations if there wasn't a relationship and he just seduced and took advantage of the the young lady uh, there was nothing consensual and so forth or it was a rape or something of that nature the father could refuse and yet still he was required to pay a cost and again the purpose behind this if you understand again culturally I know it's a little difficult for us to get our minds around it, uh, it it was essential that you got a high amount for a dowry or a bride price and the father took stewardship over that on behalf of his daughter and in a sense the dowry or the bride price was sort of like I guess the best way I can almost explain it it was almost alimony in advance uh, because if something didn't work out in the marriage relationship there was additional resources then for the father to then in a sense assist his daughter because it was very difficult for a woman to survive in that culture and if she was mistreated or sent away from her husband that dowry and bride price was a way to then help take care of her if she was sent back home or she was abandoned by her husband so in a sense it was a safeguard it not only just was a way to enrich the family, it was a safeguard and stewardship to protect the young lady from being mistreated or abused in the culture in any way, especially in a culture where women had nowhere near the honorable position and the rights and freedoms that they do in our culture today as the result of the liberating power of the gospel of Jesus Christ entering into our world. Uh, so in a sense to protect in that way, these things existed in the culture and the father had stewardship over this and if she had been seduced and there was sexual intimacy and she was not yet betrothed to anyone well what that did now is that news spread in the culture all of a sudden that meant that it was going to be very difficult for that father on behalf of his daughter and stewardship to get any type of a quality dowry for her because other men were either going to have no interest in her at all or we're basically going to say, look, uh, you know, your daughter has already been defiled. 
I, I'm not paying a high bribe. Right? I mean, she's, she's already been abused. She's already somehow been defiled by someone else, and this would diminish her value in the eyes of other young men, and it would make it more difficult. So therefore, the punishment in this situation for the offender was that he had to pay the compensation of a bride price. The dowry the father already had in mind uh, had to be then given to the father as a compensation uh, and he was to marry her unless the father again refused and said no you pay up but you are not getting my daughter as a bride as well and then he just had to pay the price uh, and that was it. Now again I, I find this beautiful a couple things you take note of is in that culture to me there's a beautiful thing that the father had a a realm of stewardship over the guardianship of his daughter protecting her purity seeking to make sure that she was successfully transitioned uh, into a marriage relationship with someone else. And I find this very beautiful thing where a father, having raised a daughter, invested in a daughter, was in a sense the guardian of her purity, the guardian of her heart and of her life, and that, that he was in that place where he could seek to, on her behalf, help her be transitioned in the most healthy way to someone else. And I, and I like this here, that a father could basically be involved to the level where he could refuse that young man from being able to have her hand in marriage if he realized, look, after what you've done to my daughter, you don't deserve my daughter at all. And I just think it's a very beautiful uh, illustration here that's set before us. And as we look at this, I think by way of principle as well, there's somewhat of an indication here of some of the heart of God in this. Again, not to, to carry this too far by way of what we can apply it, but I see here the heart of God as he gives this law to regulate something that existed in that culture in ancient Israel, arranged marriages and dowries. I see the heart of God showing us that God is seeking to prevent sex without any commitment involved. You see, God is saying, look, I'm not for sex without commitment. So in this situation, if there are sexual intimacy without commitment, uh, I'm not for that, and therefore there's going to be a cost to that. And God in so doing this and setting this as a law and a judgment in the culture was trying as a deterrent among the congregation and the society of Israel to say, look, if it deters you from having sex outside of the bounds of marriage, then that's a good thing. Because sex is to be reserved for the marital relationship where two people lovingly commit to one another and there is safety and respect for one another where that's to be indulged and enjoyed as a gift from God and a bonding experience. And again, to me, it also shows how God also cares about and values the sexual purity of those who are virgins. Again, here God is saying, if someone has their virginity still, I value that highly. And God puts a high premium on that. He puts a cost on that. And he sincerely values the sexual purity of someone in that position. And I think it also shows us thirdly as well that there is also a cost that is always going to be involved whenever sex happens outside of a marriage relationship. Sex happens outside of the marriage relationship and it says here that there was going to be a cost involved. That young man was going to have to pay a price. And I tell you, that principle, by way of application, applies to this day. So whenever there is sexual activity outside of the boundaries of a marriage relationship, there is always personal cost. There's always a price to be paid. There's physical wounds. There's emotional wounds. There's mental scars. There's relationship damage. And whenever it happens outside of marriage... 
it's always going to be something that carries a cost that's attached to it. And that was the case as one of the judgments here in the land of Israel. Well, verse 18 through 20 now give to us a few other areas where capital punishment was to be enacted. We saw that capital punishment was one of the consequences of rebellious children, of those who committed uh, murder. Uh, here we get three other areas where capital punishment in the culture was to be exercised. Verse 18, God just says directly, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. So the idea there, anyone who was involved in witchcraft, uh, spirits, uh, mediums, those who were trying to channel other spirits other than God himself, uh, open to demonic influences and sorcery and witchcraft and those kind of things in any capacity. Notice God doesn't have any differentiation between black magic and white magic. God just says, no, it's all witchcraft, sorcery channeling of spirits those who are into these kind of things when you get into the book of leviticus god gives further explanation about these things but here again you see that from god's perspective he knows the tremendous danger and the destructive potential of things like sorcery and witchcraft and magical arts and being open to channeling spirits and seeking the powers of other spirits in dark realms and stuff like that. Listen, this stuff is dangerous. It's destructive. And many times it's presented on a very casual, light way in our culture. You know, the you know, this and that and the Harry Potter stuff and play little Dungeons and Dragons. And, and these are just little small windows whereby in many ways, many of our youth get sucked into this stuff. And God here sees it as so dangerous and so destructive. God said if someone was known to be practicing sorcery, witchcraft in any way, God says you're to put them to death. And, and that was in a sense to protect the welfare of the infectious uh, influence that could have on the rest of culture. Verse 19, he says, whoever lies with an animal, so this is committing uh, the sin of bestiality, He's, and this was very common, again, with the Hittites and some of the Canaanite peoples, where the land of Israel ultimately would be as they went in. Uh, it was something that was practiced among them as a part of their fertility rites and their pagan worship practices. But God says here, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. So plain and simple. Uh, anyone indulging in, in that sin of bestiality, having any kind of activity sexually with uh, an animal, again, showing us the heart of God and how, from God's view, distorting in any way the powerful gift of sexual relations that are intended to be experienced between a man and a woman in the bonds of marriage Anything that is a distortion or perversion of that, God sees as incredibly detrimental to the culture, and God has very severe consequences for that. And we may look at that and think, oh, come on, I mean, that is like so archaic. You know what? Let me tell you, it still happens in modern culture. It, it, it still takes place. There are still those who are open to such kind of things and are doing such kind of things. And I tell you this, as we watch our generation in the United States of America morally declining and spinning down the tube and things that we now are giving tolerance to, that we're broadcasting over our airwaves, that 20 years ago, some of you in this room are you know, a few decades maybe older than me, that, that you think to yourself, we watch until you think that, that would never that would never show up on television. 
And now, not only do we tolerate it, do we endorse it, but, but we promote it. We're putting it on live television and in a sense saying, look, don't just accept it. We, you, know, you need to embrace it. And it's being forced upon us now. And as we continue to move in this way, listen, there is no end to the perversion and the digression of the morality of humanity when left to itself to go without restraint in its sexual passions and so forth. And so again, God seeing the tremendous destructiveness of this says if someone does such a thing, again, capital punishment, they were to be eliminated from the culture so that wasn't uh, propagated around in other ways because of the destructiveness of that. He also says, verse 20, he who sacrifices to any God, that is idolatry, sacrificing to other gods, Except to the Lord only, he shall utterly be destroyed. So again, you see here the heart of God that he views idolatry in a culture as extremely dangerous. Again, because idolatry is like spiritual adultery. We read in the Bible that one of the things there was capital crime for, capital punishment, was for the sin of adultery. They would stone people to death. You, you were put to death if you committed adultery. Because God that highly valued the marriage relationship. He put a tremendous esteem upon marriage whereby it was a capital offense. And here God says, in the same way, idolatry, sacrificing to other gods other than the Lord your God there in Israel, he says, that's just spiritual adultery. It's treason. And it's treason against me and it will be something that will turn the hearts of other people away from me. And as people entered into idolatry and built idolatrous altars, uh, like those ultimately did, you know, Jeroboam, we'll see later on, and, and lead God's people away to other altars other than the worship of the Lord thy God. God looks at that like kidnapping. And God says, you're kidnapping my children and you're leading them away to other things. So again, very severely here, God says, if someone does such things, they shall be utterly destroyed. Verse 21, he goes on, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him. For you, God says, were strangers in the land of Egypt. So God reminds them as there would be foreigners among them, aliens in their land. Ultimately, God says, remember, you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You were once strangers in a foreign land. And I was compassionate to you. I cared for you there. You remember what it was like as they afflicted you. And the Egyptians hated anyone. They were an extremely, we talked about this in our prior studies with Joseph and, and so forth in the beginning of the book of Exodus. The Egyptians were an extremely arrogant and prejudiced people. They hated anyone who was not nationally an Egyptian. They wouldn't even intermingle with people of other cultures. There was a tremendous sort of bigotry that they had. And, and God says, you know what that's like. You were once a stranger somewhere else yourself and you knew what it was to be mistreated. So God here says, you shall not do that. Have compassion rather than be mistreating them and oppressing them. Again, God protecting very beautifully those who are foreigners from being abused, from being taken advantage of in that status of being a, a stranger or a foreigner in a land. And listen, I know we live in a culture where people have some very strong convictions even in our modern day in the United States of America about immigration and protecting our borders and all those kind of things. And I'm not here to discuss politics, but I tell you this, at the end of the day, those are still human beings and those are souls of people that God love. 
And they are just as much worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the same way, God's bringing a mission field to us. How many of us want to go to Africa and go to Iran and go to the Middle East and go to other places and reach people of those nasty... Most of us can and most of us won't. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong either way. Listen, my, my, that, that's not the furthest thing from my point. But the point is, is they're here. And those who are here, they are just as much worthy of the love of God and the kindness of Christ and of ministry. And, and let politics do what politics do. But we as Christians still have the opportunity as God's people to love them, to be maybe kind to them when everyone else does mistreat them or is hostile towards them because of their political convictions in society and so on and so forth. It's still an opportunity for us to still love them rather than to mistreat them and show them compassion just as human beings that God cares for. Verse 22, he then goes on to say, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. And we see all throughout the Bible that God has a very special place in his heart for widows and for orphans. We see that repeatedly. Again, a widow and an orphan, especially in those earlier cultures, not that they aren't today, but in those earlier cultures, they were very vulnerable. They were very defenseless. And for them to be able to survive, if a, if a wife lost her husband or if a child was orphaned, to be able to survive literally day to day was extremely difficult. They were defenseless. They had no one to come to their aid, no one to protect them. They were in a very vulnerable position. And because of that, God had a real special place in his heart for them of compassion, always telling you know, his people to look out for them. And here God has to actually warn not only just looking out for them, but he says, if anybody tries to harm one of them, if anybody tries to take advantage of their vulnerable position, in a sense, to, to prey upon them in their defenseless condition and think somehow, well, because they have no defender and because they are in that condition, well, then I can take advantage of them. I can do something to prey upon the widow or to do something to take advantage of this orphan child. And, and in a sense, there's a little easier access because of their vulnerability and their defense. And God says, if that happens, look what he says, verse 23. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will, and I have that circle in my Bible, I, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children shall be fatherless. That's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? <laughs> In other cases, when crimes happen and violations of civil law, God would say, put that person to death. Don't allow that person to live. When it comes to the widow and the orphan, God says, if somebody harms or afflicts a widow or an orphan in that defenseless condition, God says, Nobody in the culture needs to do anything because I'll get personally involved and I will severely judge and discipline myself, he says, anyone who does that. And God says, I'll take personal initiative on that one. The police force isn't required, he says. The judicial system wouldn't be necessary. And I just, I love the heart of God, how he comes to the defense of the defenseless. That is the heart of God. He speaks up for those who have no voice. He comes to the aid and the protection of those who are defenseless. And you know what? I think as God's people that we should seek to be advocates in those kind of situations. Well, it is in keeping with the heart of God to speak up for those who have no voice for themselves. It is in the heart of God and the nature of God to strongly want to defend those who are unable to defend themselves. 
and they're abused and taken advantage of in their vulnerable conditions. And here God very severely gives a strong warning regarding this situation. Verse 25, he then says, And if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you. So again, if you have somebody who's impoverished, maybe a struggling farmer, they're having trouble making ends meet, uh, so they need a loan, and they go to a fellow brother in the Israelite community, he says, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like the money lender, you shall not charge him interest. Now, interesting, God says, among the family of God, among the congregation of Israel, he says, if somebody needs a loan and you genuinely want to give them a loan, he said, that's fine. But help them out. But don't in that moment, like the money lenders would do, charge them exorbitant interest rates for them to pay back the loan, whereby, in a sense, you can profit off of what? Their misfortune. See, God's not into that. God says, if you want to help somebody, help somebody. But don't ever become guilty, God says, of trying to profit off of somebody else's misfortune. And sadly, that's in the human nature a lot of times. Somebody finds themselves in a place where they're struggling. And is it not true? Look at our culture and our society. And how many times do people prey upon the financial misfortune of someone else? And somebody's in a financial you know, bind. And, and, and instead of saying, hey, what can we do to help that person? Somebody is eyeing up saying, oh, man, I'm going to capitalize on that situation and I'm going to prey upon it or and, and it, whether it's you know charging exorbitant interest rates or just coming in and that's the whole idea here is that God does not like when we take advantage of the misfortune of others and capitalize on people's hardships in finances and, and this is what he's warning against here verse 26 he says if you ever take your neighbor's garment that would be like their cloak the, the large outer garment it was like a big blanket that they would put their arms in they would sleep in this it would keep them warm at night so if you're poor you don't even have a roof to put over your head but they would have their cloak that would be like the only possession they had and if they laid on the street at least they would wrap that around them and it was their blanket it was their house and their shelter it's what kept them warm at night. So let's say, he says, a situation arises where for collateral, that's the only thing someone has. And they say, look, hey, you know, I, 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 can I have a few bucks or can you lend me some money? I'm in hard times or can I work for you? And well, what do you have as collateral? Well, the only thing I have is my cloak. That's the only thing I own. And, and they actually let you hold that as collateral to justify their sincerity to do a day's work for you or something of that nature. You take it as a pledge that their oath is sincere in some arrangement. He says, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. So in compassion, before nighttime comes, you're to give it back to him. Irregardless of what's happened throughout the course of the day, God says, still give it back before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, verse 27. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in, God says? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. So again, the Lord says, despite their situation, uh, he says, I like to be gracious to those who are in need. And as representatives of Jehovah God, they were to represent the nature of God. They were to be gracious to people who were in need. So they were to give that garment back, whether the arrangement had gone the way it was supposed to, they were still to, in their distress, be gracious to them and compassionate and merciful. Verse 28, he says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Boy, oh boy, that is difficult. <laughs> you shall not revile God. And he says, you shall not curse a ruler 
of your people. Again, that term there could be a reference to the judges that were serving in Israel, could be a reference, again, later on we see this referring to the kings in Israel. Uh, God's just reminding us, in the same way he is the supreme authority over all creation and rules over our lives, the Bible teaches Old and New Testament that God ordains people to have authority. And those who are in authority have an authority that has been given to them by God and God has permitted them to be in that position. We may not agree with their policies. We may not respect their style of leadership, but yet the Bible still says that we are to give them honor because of the position that they hold. Their practices may be corrupt. Their policies may be completely contradictory to everything we think and agree with, but nonetheless, we are to be careful because our flesh loves to do this. Our flesh loves to do that. And I'll tell you something. In some ways, to me, that's why it's not even healthy for me to flip on something, maybe like a talk radio station and stuff sometimes, because some of these people who may be very accurate in some of their convictions that contradict people who are currently in places of administration in the things they say, the problem for me becomes, then it becomes nothing than a tirade of verbal abuse, and it just feeds my flesh... And rather than being respectful of the position, my flesh just wants to indulge the same thing and jump on the same bandwagon. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 2 what we are to do. It says that we are to pray, not pray upon with verbal abuse, but to pray for rulers and kings and those who are there. We're to pray for them. That's how we're to use our mouths, God says. Use your mouth to pray for them. God, reach them. Get a hold of their heart. Save them, Lord. Put wise counselors around them, praying for their cabinet member. God, help them to see the error of their ways. And, and here, God gave this instruction to the society and congregation of Israel. Verse 29, you shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. And again, we saw back in Exodus chapter 13, they didn't actually give their sons. They would pay the redemption price uh, for their firstborn son to acknowledge that that firstborn son belonged to God. But in a sense, they would pay that redemption cost and allow their child to live as compared to the difference with their animals. Likewise, verse 30, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days, and then on the eighth day you shall give it to me. So here in verse 29 and 30, God is giving laws regarding his desire that we would offer to him our best. And again, the idea is uh, recognizing the fact in appreciation that God supplies that God is our provider, whether it's our crops or whether it was their animals that they had to utilize in making a living and providing for their needs. God says, whatever it is of the first fruits, that is the first part of what comes in in your provision, God, notice, expected that they would give to him their best, not their leftovers, but that they would give to God their best. And it was just in an attitude of appreciation. Lord, we acknowledge everything belongs to you. You're the source of all things. It says Deuteronomy chapter 8 that God declares, do not forget, I the Lord God give you power to make wealth. That, that everything that we have and, and belongs to us is something that's a gift from God. He's the source. He gives us an opportunity to work. He blesses us with a skill to work. He provides us for us at times in our, in our lives when we're not even working and he still brings bounty into us and he takes care of us and God just says, listen, I, as an acknowledgement to me of your appreciation of my provision, he says, I, I want the first fruits 
Acknowledge me in faith, Lord, what you give. I want to give a portion of it back to you. And it was just a means of appreciation that God set into their hearts for what he would do to care for them. Verse 31, he says, And you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. So no picking up roadkill along the side of the road, you know, that kind of thing. I was just in a Bible study a few weeks <laughs> weeks ago on a Tuesday night. I, I teach a, a Bible study every Tuesday night for a, uh, a group of uh, surfers. And a few weeks back, uh, there was somebody that got invited that night. And as he was on his way there, he called and he said, hey, man, I'm not going to make it. And the guy said, what, what's, what's the matter? What's going on? Everything okay? He said, yeah, I just, I just hit a deer, man. And, and I got to capitalize on the opportunity. And all of a sudden, then everybody's jumping up. You need a hand? You want to share some of it? You know? And I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, we're going to have to put a hold on the Bible study. Free deer meat. And all of a sudden, everybody, everybody was all excited about the deer that got hit along the side of the road uh, to be able to have some you know, uh, protein in their freezers all of a sudden. And God's saying here, look, he's telling the people, again, for hygienic reasons, as well as the idea of that they would just be set apart. He says, you shall, instead of partaking in that, set it apart and, and not partake. And again, the purpose, verse 31, is he said, you shall be holy men to me. God wanted the nation of Israel to live distinctively, to live differently. The idea is that these were things that everyone in the culture did. So in some ways, God said, I want you to be set apart. I don't want you to do everything that people in society do. And so some of the laws and regulations that God gave to his people were for the purpose that they might be seen as set apart unto God. That people might realize, hey, you live differently. You live sanctified over to God's purposes. You obey a different law than just the laws of you know, the land and, and what men deem right in their own minds. And again, to this day still, the Bible tells us, even as we were going through on Sunday mornings, our study in First Peter, remember, Peter quotes from the Old Testament where he says that God tells us, you know, be holy for I am holy. Peter says that in his writings. That God wants us to represent him by living differently from the world. We are to live in the world, but not be of the world. And I tell you, the most radical effect that we can have on our culture is to not try so hard to be relevant that we try and be exactly like the culture, but to live distinctively different from the culture and to let them see there's something radically different about us. That's appealing to them. That makes people question and inquisitive. Why do you live that way? Why are your convictions different? Why do you choose to refrain from things that nobody refrains from? Why would you not just indulge yourself? Why would you deny yourself and live differently and live? Se Why would you keep yourself in moral purity and and reserve your sexual purity? Nobody does that. Right? I mean, well, well, the reason I do that is because I believe my body is a vessel of God. And I do it to honor God. And it's because what God told me is the best thing for me to do. So you know what? Despite what everybody else is doing around me, I believe God's way is the best way. And see, that becomes, in a sense, the most attractive thing to the culture because they realize there's something authentic in that. There's something genuine in that. And so here God calls his people to be holy unto him, to to live set apart. Chapter 23, he goes on saying, you shall not circulate a false report and do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. So again, not they were not to be guilty of circulating lies, gossip, 
slander, rumors, things that were false reports within the court and judicial systems. They weren't to put their hand in together with other wicked men to be an unrighteous witness. The idea is you shall not bear false testimony. Even to our day still in the judicial system, that's what's asked of people. And I always still scratch my head because people at the beginning of a court case all swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Of course, they don't say anymore, so help you God. But nonetheless, I always found that interesting. I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And then two different people talk and they share completely contradictory stories. And I just, there's something very peculiar about that. <laughs> what are we doing here? But here God says they were to be a righteous people. They were to live in truth and speak the truth. They were not to be guilty of circulating falsehood. And I tell you, as, as a congregation of God's people, we should never be guilty of that as well. We need to be careful of circulating false reports, misinformation, taking things that are unhealthy and circulating them around, rumors and slander. God says, don't, don't be guilty of that because that can be some of the most destructive stuff among a people group and God asks them to be cautious and to refrain from that. Verse 2, he says, and you shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Well, that's good counsel there. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. In the New Testament, Paul says, bad company corrupts good character. And, and the crowd, many times, is always going to gravitate towards evil things. And God says, listen, you're, you're not to be a crowd follower. Be careful. The idea is be careful of peer pressure here. And listen, let's be very frank. I don't care if you're 13 years old. I don't care if you're 23 years old. I don't care if you're 43 or 63 years old. Peer pressure never goes away. It never goes away. Whether it's in your job place and so everybody else is talking about this, so then you follow the crowd and start talking about the same thing or you get in the same filthy conversation or everybody else is kind of cutting corners in this area and, hey, well, the boss isn't around, so instead of taking this long of a break, we're going to take this long of a break and, and, and all <laughs> what everybody else is doing. And if I get up and start working after a half hour when you know everybody else is, what are you doing? And, and, and then everybody's going to get, what are you doing, man? What, what, what are you trying to make us feel guilty? What are you, look. You obey the Lord. You follow the Lord. Be a leader. Be an influencer. Don't be influenced by peer pressure to be persuaded to go the way of the crowd to do evil. Stand up for God and live in a way that you, in a sense, persuade the crowd in another way because you're either going to be influenced or you can be an influence. And I certainly recommend the latter, and I think God's heart's consistent with the same thing. He says, verse 2, you shall also not testify in a dispute so as to turn aside many after many to pervert justice. So again, not bearing uh, you know, false witness in, in a courtroom. Again, same idea from verse 1. Verse 3, you shall not show partiality, he says, to a poor man in his dispute. Now, that's interesting, not showing partiality to someone who is in poverty if a dispute or a situation arises. What's God doing here? God understanding human nature and how when you see somebody maybe who's in a poor condition and your heart might be moved emotionally, right, in pity for them, you're thinking, gosh, man, this person's already doubting out. Look at them. I mean, they're, they're in rags. They're, they're, and, and, and your heart is stirred emotionally. And then because your heart is stirred emotionally in pity and sympathy for their status because of what you see, 
if you're not careful, that emotional response can then sway you from making good judgment. And maybe it is a, a, a pitiful thing and maybe your emotions are stirred in compassion, but God says, look, but if they're guilty, they're guilty. If they've done something wrong, they've done something wrong. And what God is warning of here is not showing partiality and making poor judgments because we're being led by our emotions rather than by good reason and sound judgment and discernment. We have to be careful because sometimes our emotions can really mislead us making good judgments about situations. And we want to be cautious of that as people. So God warned them not to be led by their emotions, but to show no favoritism. Again, the Bible says God shows partiality to no man. They were to make equitable decisions and exercise justice, whether it was the poorest person among the congregation of Israel or whether it was the wealthiest person in the congregation of Israel, they were to show the same equitable treatment to everyone. Verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox, again, this is like his tractor, eat your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall not surely bring it back, you shall, excuse me, surely bring it back to him again. And if you see the donkey of one who hates you, lying under its burden, so it's fallen down under the load it was carrying, and you would, notice God knows us, and you would refrain from helping it, because I know what you would do. <laughs> you go, and you know that's so true. I mean, here you see you know, your next door neighbor, some guy up the road, and he just really can't stand the guy. He's just a cantankerous person. There's all kinds of animosity and agita between you. And then all of a sudden, you see his donkey crossing Farmer Joe's field on the other side of your house, and, and God knows our nature would be like, oh, isn't that interesting? Oh. <laughs> you know, finally he's getting his, and, and, and God says, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Again, as we get to the New Testament, ultimately Jesus will say things to us in a similar way, and he'll say, love your neighbor. Bless those who persecute you. And here again, just because we may have an angst or animosity or there's somebody that we got an issue with, God says, again, sometimes we need to be willing to set aside our feelings, and if the right thing to do is to be kind or to be helpful, then we should do that. And we should be willing to set aside maybe any you know, agita or things that exist between us and to take the high road as his people and to be helpful and show the love of God and be uh, an assistant at times when we see a need arise. Verse 6, you shall not pervert judgment of your poor in his dispute. So again, almost a replication of the thoughts from earlier. Again, not perverting judgment, making sure that you're not unfair to the poor as well in a dispute, kind of thinking down upon them. And so you look down as if they're unvaluable. Almost the opposite of what he said a little bit ago is, is, hey, well, yeah, it's just a poor beggar and he's not worth anything in the society and he doesn't contribute anything. And so then you're impartial to him. And maybe you show favoritism to the wealthier person in the dispute because you look down upon the value of someone who's poor. Verse 7, he says, keep yourself far from a false matter. Now, that's real good counsel even today still. If there's a matter that's a false matter, God says, stay away from it. Keep yourself far from it. There's a time that there are certain things that go on around us that the right thing to do is to avoid it. Stay away from it. Get out of it. Detach from it. God says, keep yourself far. Is there a false matter? Maybe there's something going on in your life right now or is going to happen this week. And God says, sometimes the best thing to do is to put distance between that matter and yourself. Just stay away from it. Detach from it. Make sure that you're not connected to it so that you don't get drawn in or become a participant. Keep yourself from a false matter and do not kill the innocent 
and the righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe, God says, blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. So here God understands and says to the people and to those who are judges in that day, listening to different civil disputes and matters, he says, listen, don't you ever take a bribe from anyone. Don't you ever let someone offer to you some personal financial benefit in a way whereby then that's going to persuade the way that you make a judgment or a decision in relation to them. He says here that if you receive a bribe, he knew if those judges took bribes, and of course this happened in that culture, it happens to this day still, nothing new under the sun. And whether it happens in an official sense or whether it just happens in little informal ways, people still to this day seek to use their resources to bribe others, to you know, have things covered up or overlooked and, and so on and so forth. And God says, be careful, don't take a bribe. For a bribe, he says, will blind the discerning and it will pervert the words of the righteous. Here the heart of God is revealed to us that he understands that whenever we receive personal benefits from somebody, the danger in so doing that is that can persuade us, if we're not careful, to be impartial or preferential with them. And I would just caution you, there is a time when somebody wants to do something to benefit you or to help you, and maybe it isn't even the area of something financial, where the wisest thing to do maybe is to say, you know what? No thanks. Because I don't want that to persuade the way I relate to you. I don't want that to persuade what I might say to you that's way more valuable than anything that you can give to me. And I don't want to let my heart or my mind be persuaded because I realize, well, man, I, I really probably should say this or I should do this, but man, you know, she really helped me out or, or you know, then she might not. What if she gets upset? Then she won't help me out next time or, or he won't, you know, you know the, the supply will stop somehow. And God says, be careful of that. Be careful of that. We don't want anything like that to ever begin to interfere with our judgment. The judges were to be aware of it. And I think personally, we just have to be cautious in our lives. I'm not saying there's a time and a place for different things, but we just need to be cautious because God says bribery in its various forms, however those little perks and benefits come, they can distort our perspective and cause us to lack discernment in the way that we interact with people or maybe not say things that we should say on certain occasions. Verse 9, also you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So again, God says you understand the heart condition of what it was like in Egypt when you were mistreated. And he says, therefore, out of your own experiences, give those things back to others. Six years you shall sow your land and gather its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and also your olive grove. So look what God does here. I mean, this is tremendous wisdom. God here sets in order a system, and it matches... The same protocol he used in creation where he created the world in six days and the seventh day he rested. God institutes now what is called a sabbatic year where they could work their land 
and till their land for its produce for six years. But in the seventh year, they were to refrain from planting, harvesting, doing anything, and just let the land die, lie fallow. Now, there's tremendous wisdom in that just agriculturally because it allows the soil to recuperate. And the minerals and the, you know, all the things that are essential to cause the soil to be healthy and productive, if you overwork a piece of land too much, ultimately it does more damage than it does good. So God says once a year, give the land a rest. Or, or excuse me, once every seven years, let the land rest in the seventh year and don't work the land. Now, as the result of doing that, God promised them that if they did do that in obedience, that in that sixth year, he'd give them a bumper crop and he would so bless their produce in the sixth year that it would carry them all the way through, that they could trust God in faith, that if they ceased from their labors and let the land rest, that in the seventh year, God would, would take care of them because of the extra bumper crop that he would give them. It was a great system. God says, you get a year off and I'll provide for you the whole year. You don't have to work. I'm thinking, that's great. Can we do that again? It's fantastic. Every six years, just take a year off. Just relax and don't do any work. And God says, I'll give you such a bumper crop. You can just enjoy yourself and be with your family and, and let your land just lie fallow. And in that as well, God institutes, in a sense, a welfare system to care for the poor in the process. Because the land would still produce of itself without even having to be worked some things would then still spring forth from their land, from their fields and their olive groves and vineyards. And he says, while you're letting the land rest, the poor of your people can come through and they can glean. And in a sense, it established a welfare system to care for the poor. And it didn't cost anybody anything. And God instituted this beautiful system to be able to just take care of those who did have genuine need in the culture. And remember, we'll talk more as we get further in the Old Testament. Ultimately, this is what Israel ignores. Remember, ultimately, this is what leads them into Babylonian captivity. Because in their greediness, they don't let that seventh year let the land rest. They kept working their land and working the land, disregarding God's system. And ultimately, as a result of disregarding God's system, it backfired. didn't work. And I'll tell you this, it's a good reminder because when God sets something in order in his word, it's wise for us just for faith to say, you know what, that doesn't make logical sense. And, and what if it doesn't, listen, just trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Manage things the way God's word says to manage them in your life. Do things the way God's word says to do them and trust the Lord to let it work out. If we try and do something differently because of a lack of faith or greediness or selfishness and all the reasons that they did that, it only causes more problems long-term in our own lives. So God institutes this. He says, verse 12, In six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. And again, the idea there is so that God, not only with the land gave that one day a week. We talked about this before, this, the Sabbath day, where they could get all their work done. God says, I know you, whatever you got to do, get it done in six days. And, and then take one day to just detach, to refresh, to focus on God, to spend time with their family. Again, notice God in his compassion doesn't desire us to work ourselves to death. It was just as sacred to God to rest and be refreshed as it was to labor and to work diligently. God put that into practice. And of course, we know all of these things eventually become just a picture 
of exactly what Jesus Christ does for us as he, the Lord of the Sabbath, becomes our Sabbath rest. The Hebrew 4 chapter tells us that. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that Jesus himself becomes our Sabbath rest. The Bible says there's a rest for the people of God. In the same way on the Sabbath, they were to cease from their labors and just trust God and God's way. In Jesus Christ, that's what we get to do. We cease from laboring. We cease from our works. And we just trust God by faith. Remember what Jesus said? And he said it in relation to all of the religious regulations and the traditions of the Pharisees and, and, and as they added things to the word of God, again, the Mishnah and the Talmud and all these writings. And they would take one portion of the Old Testament and they would write multitudes upon multitudes of extra rules and requirements and rituals. And they had all these burdensome obligations on the people. And remember in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, not the yoke of the law and all the religious traditions and requirements and rituals and obligations of ceremony. He says, let go of that yoke. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I'm gentle and lowly of heart and you'll find rest for your soul. And how wonderful that Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law that he righteously satisfied everything in the law of God, sinlessly fulfilled it, and he says, therefore, guess what? You don't have to work to be right with me. You can cease from your labors. I am your Sabbath. And if you embrace me and you follow me, Jesus says there can be rest for your soul. And you know what? I'll tell you something. There is no more glorious thing than to be able to experience rest internally. In the same way when you are exhausted physically and nothing feels better to just pass out when you are so exhausted, being exhausted in your internal being because you don't know you're right with God is the most wearying, tormenting thing in the world. And listen, God would say, if that's you tonight still struggling to try and work to be right with God, listen, stop working. You don't have to work. You're not supposed to work. Jesus did the work. What God wants is for you to embrace Jesus by faith and say, Jesus, thank you for finishing the work on the cross. And Jesus, I embrace you as my Savior, my Lord. And then the rest of God can come into your soul and allow you to know, hey, I'm right with God. And that's a glorious thing to be able to experience internally.